Kieran Review Print Speaking to the Blind, celebrating 40 years of audio newspaper production. Welcome to this week's edition of the Herald Scotland podcast, recorded at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre by our amazing volunteers. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using at Kieran Review, that is at symbol C-U-E-A-N-E-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also contact us directly by emailing information at tunereview.com. That is I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot C-O-M or by calling 0141 772 That's 0141 772 Andrew Whale, 25th of November 1940 to the 18th of August 2023. Following a short illness, we are saddened to advise of the passing of Andrew Whale, husband to Margaret, father to Stephen and Matthew. But to those of us at Kuhn Review Print Speaking to the Blind, Andrew was a mainstay of our reading team. Born in London and the former Director of Library Services at the University of Glasgow, it was his membership of Campsie Parish Church and wider church community that meant he and Margaret could ensure local people living with sight loss heard about our daily talking newspaper podcasts. Moore Mackay, our former Director of Operations, said today, his command of language and lovely voice was a joy for me and our listeners. Morag went on to say that she valued his unfailing willingness to help, his constant courtesy and patience with her. This must have been a real trial at times. Over lockdown, he learned a raft of new skills to keep the service going. Alistair McPhee, our managing editor, said, While our volunteer readers are now loving the convenience of reading from home, One of my biggest regrets is not seeing team members in person each week. The friendship that Margaret and then Andrew offered me over many years will not be forgotten. Andrew was the newbie reader of the Whale family team, and I especially loved the interactions between Margaret and Andrew in the studio corridor. Margaret being the boss and passing on her digital recording and microphone technique to her apprentice, Andrew. Margaret would usually finish first, meaning I got to spend time with her for a coffee and a blether until Andrew came out of the studio, never understanding why Margaret always finished first. Far be it from me to imply that the boss had got him to do the longer articles, or even worse, the more complicated names. Obviously, far more likely was that Margaret's years of experience as an English teacher before joining around 20 years ago as a key team member was the real reason. Over 10 years ago, when we were looking for voices to record the members magazine for the charity English Heritage, there was only one team that Morag was going to approach to be the core of the project. We so appreciated their commitment, ensuring there were no mistakes and little editing to be done. Andrew was one of the first team members to sign up as lockdown started to record from home. Andrew and Margaret joined Roddy, our lockdown producer, 
in learning yet more digital recording techniques through online training sessions. With Andrew's passing, Margaret has indicated that she will also retire, a sentiment we understand and appreciate. Our listeners and your colleagues will miss you both. This is from the Herald Scotland of Wednesday the 23rd of August 2023 from the Voices section. Burgeoning Djokovic-Alcarath rivalry evokes tennis memories of old. This article is by James Morgan. If you watch the BBC's three-part series, Gods of Tennis, which aired just before this year's Wimbledon Championships, you might have been struck by how many pure rivalries there were in the sport back in the 70s and 80s. In the programme, there were some clunkier associations such as Arthur Ashe and Billie Jean King, two players representing marginalised groups who, it was argued in the first episode, might have had a more vocal presence had Ash joined forces with King rather than ignoring her campaign aimed at giving women greater equality in the game. The whys and wherefores of such an argument need the context of time and place ascribed to them. Ash was having a difficult enough job establishing himself as that rarest of breeds, a black man competing with some success in a white-dominated sport. The second and third episodes dealt with the rivalries between John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg and Martina Navratilova and Chrissy Evert. The fixture recalls the epic Wimbledon final between McEnroe and Borg with childlike wonderment. The household had come to a standstill as my mother, father and elder sister sat glued to the sofa. My younger brother and I would venture in and out of the house every so often, at various junctures caught up in the tension and at others in utterly indifferent to it. On these occasions we'd wander outside for a play with our friends, only to return twenty minutes later to discover that their marathon was still being run. Stop to think about a tennis match and just how much you can fit into the time that two players will be on court for, and you get an overwhelming sense of just how time has no meaning in a fight to the death such as that which McEnroe and Borg were engaged in. Pick up a racket and play two sets of a club rubber, and the appreciation for what these protagonists put themselves through becomes even more acute. It is prevalent in the burgeoning rivalry between Carlos Alcaraz and Novak Djokovic. Their final at the Cincinnati Open on Sunday night conjured up memories of McEnroe Borg's face-offs 40-odd years ago. Djokovic appears legitimately confounded by his Spanish opponent's ability to flick a wrist to a ball to fetch the seemingly unreturnable winner down the line. They are two players who almost have the perfect antidote to each other's styles. Matches between the two thus far have taken on the appearance of a 80s video game, Pong, 
but that conveys the impression that this might be boring or a chore to watch, then it's a wrong one. Their rallies are full of attacking tennis, of daring shot choices and elan. They cancel each other out for the most part in what appears to be a zero-sum game before one or the other demonstrates their fallibility by making a mistake. But there is another dimension to their rivalry and the single quotes are there for a good reason. The two men genuinely seem to like each other. They are kindred spirits, like two great thinkers who are ideologically opposed, but who cannot help but appreciate each other's genius. In many ways, they remind you of the rivalry between Navratilova and Evert, documented in Gods of Tennis, pitted as East versus West combatants, the pair were good friends at the outset of their rivalry before Martina had to convince herself to hate her American counterpart in order to get the better of her, before later in life they reconciled with each other and became great friends again. At 36, Djokovic's age would suggest that his rivalry with Alcarath will not reach the point where the pair are engaged in an outright war of attrition. The Serb admitted he had been pushed to the limits of his physical capabilities in Cincinnati and hinted at retirement after his defeat to Alcarath in the Wimbledon final in July, saying, He's going to be on the tour for quite some time. I don't know how long I'll be around. For now, let's just enjoy their head-to-heads for as long as they last. This is from the Herald Scotland of Wednesday the 23rd of August 2023 from the business section. Buzz grows for Scottish-grown Japanese superberry. This article is by Jim Miller. Scottish growers of a Japanese superberry are working with Queen Margaret University to develop a range of new products to diversify the market. Originally from Japan and Russia, enthusiasts say the honeyberry contains more antioxidants than a blueberry and more vitamin C than an orange. Although native to Asia, the Scottish climate suits the berries which are currently grown in eight orchards across Scotland in Duns, Angus, Tayside, Perth and Fife. Currently, honeyberries are offered fresh in-season frozen and freeze-dried for the rest of the year and as a jam. Other products launching this year include dark chocolate-covered honeyberries and a sparkling juice drink which also contains British apples. Interest from potential growers continues to increase and the Honeyberry Growers Cooperative is currently rolling out its offering nationwide and will be exhibiting in London in the coming months. Caroline Black of Scottish Honeyberry Growers said, The honeyberry is high in vitamin C, potassium, and anthocyanins, antioxidants, and polyphenols. They have a unique anthocyanin profile, with one specific anthocyanin called cyanid-3-glucoside, known as C3G, this one specific anthocyanin makes up around 85% of the total anthocyanin content. 
Cyanide 3 glucoside is the major anthocyanin found in colored legumes. Anthocyanins from colored legumes are reported to exhibit anti-inflammatory, anti-carcinogenic, anti-tumor, and anti-mutagenic activities. It also enhances spatial memory, enhances cognition, and inhibits LDL oxidization. The nutritional content of the honeyberry has also created significant scientific interest. A study by the University of Northumberland showed that honeyberries can improve running speed by 2% and increase the time it takes to tire. Miss Black said honeyberries had been a find by one of the growers who was on honeymoon in Japan, where they are known as the berry of longevity, and had found them used as an ingredient in a number of products. She said she was interested in the health benefits and how they are grown. Then a group of farmers, after hearing about the wonders of the honeyberry and doing some more research, went to Canada, where they have been growing them commercially to learn more. The fact that the honeyberry needs a frost and are a hardy plant meant that they are perfect for our climate here in Scotland. The honeyberry plant flowers in February and March, which is early, and for cross-pollination we rely on the native masonry bee and the bumblebees. The farmers have done a huge amount of work into the development of the orchards and we are so proud of what they are achieved and to have produced this beautiful berry packed full of so much goodness here in our soil. This is from the Herald Scotland of Wednesday the 23rd of August 2023 from the Voices section. Harvey's heat pump vision shows the Scottish Government's blind spot. This article is by Guy Stenhouse. One of the things about governments is that when faced with a complex issue, they grasp a simplistic quick-fix solution which makes things worse. Cars are producing too much CO2. Let's all go diesel. Oops. In Scotland, as elsewhere, residential rents are rising, so the Scottish Government introduces a rent cap. The result is a reduction in the supply of houses for rent. In some places, you cannot now rent a home. Since its reverse takeover of the Scottish Government, the Scottish Green Party has been working hard to increase our cost of living, damage the economy, and make our public services harder to fund. After helping muck up the housing rental market and flushed with righteous indignation over the self-inflicted fiasco of the deposit return scheme, the Greens are finally getting to grips with the area they most want to meddle in, energy policy. We need to use much less fossil fuel heating our homes if we are to meet our goal to limit global warming. What we cannot do on the way towards that worthy objective is to increase dramatically the cost for people to heat their homes, nor must we increase the vulnerability of our energy supply. Patrick Harvey has decided that when it comes to delivering heat to our homes, the only solution is heat pumps, a nice simple solution to a complex problem. Effective, cheaper to run, and green. Heat pumps seem to have all the answers. 
Well done, Patrick. Except that the merits of heat pumps are not as straightforward as they seem. There are essentially two types of heat pump, ground or occasionally water source and air source. Their first drawback is that they are both more expensive, in the case of ground source much more expensive, to install than gas boilers. There is therefore an extra cost for householders or taxpayers. Some claim the upfront cost is not a problem because heat pumps are cheaper to run than gas boilers. Unfortunately, that's not true. The efficiency of a ground source heat pump means it has got a decent chance of being cheaper to run than your gas boiler. But having cost potentially more than 10 times as much to install, it is a challenging equation for the bill payer. The bigger problem is with air source heat pumps, which make up the vast majority of all heat pump installations. Broadly, an air source heat pump should on average produce three units of heat for every unit of electricity it consumes. Gas is about three times cheaper than electricity, but the efficiency advantage for heat pumps makes it sound like running costs would be comparable. Unfortunately, the deadly words in this analysis are on average. If you look at the efficiency of a heat pump through the year as a whole, an average efficiency ratio of three is realistic. But this ignores the fact that in July, when heat pumps are most efficient because the outside air is warmer, we don't need much heat. But in January, when we need a lot of heat, an air source heat pump's efficiency ratio might be only one. Based on how we actually use our heating systems, an air source heat pump will be more expensive to run than a gas boiler. Another issue is that our energy distribution network could not cope if there is rapid widespread switch to heat pumps. This can be fixed, but it will take time and cost many billions of pounds, which somebody has to pay for. Worse still, the, Got the Scottish government is allowing our electricity generation capability to become less and less suited to heat pumps. Heat pumps need, surprise, surprise, reliable supplies of electricity. Hydroelectric generation is great, but small. Wind is useless because of its intermittency. Batteries work for a few hours, not days. Only fossil fuel and nuclear can be relied on. If Scotland were a separate country when the Torness nuclear power station goes offline, we would be stuffed. A key issue with air source heat pumps, as Lord Hockey has pointed out, is that they can struggle to work in Scotland. You might be chilly in your home on a cold winter's night. New, well-insulated houses with underfloor heating are fine, but in Scotland the vast majority of homes are not like that, and because heat pumps heat water up to lower temperatures than gas boilers, that's a problem. Much larger radiators, wall insulation which can create damp and mould risk, and other measures help manage the problem, 
but to add another layer of cost. There are solutions. For the home where a ground source heat pump is impractical, a hybrid system where an air source heat pump is topped up when necessary by a small gas boiler is a solution which works and is available now. As more renewable energy generation comes online, electricity tariffs will increasingly widen the price difference between peak and off-peak power. Good old storage heaters may then make a comeback. The potential role of hydrogen should also not be ignored. On the supply side, there is only one sensible decision. We have got to invest in at least two nuclear power stations to replace Hunterston, which is already offline, and Torness, which has not got many years to go. Without that, within 20 years, we will be worrying about our ability to keep the lights on, and ironically, we will be crucially dependent on England's nuclear generation. This is from the Herald, Scotland, of Wednesday, the 23rd of August, 2023, from the Voices section. How do SRU find the next Jim Fleming after World Cup ref snub? This article is by Martin Hannan. It was an old football joke that I remembered when I was thinking about writing this column. After a weekend in which yet again referees played a huge part in the events of international matches. What do you call a Scot appearing in a World Cup final? The referee. You could not tell the same joke about rugby union for the simple fact that at this World Cup in France, now just over a fortnight away, there will be no Scottish referees not even an assistant ref or a television match official, foul play review official, the TMO-FPRO. Every other Tier 1 nation except Argentina has at least one person on the panel of officials as named by World Rugby for this year's tournament. Joy Neville of Ireland is the only woman on the panel designated as a TMO-FPRO, and she thoroughly deserves to be on the panel. But so does our best current referee, Holly Davidson, who has been a full-time professional referee for six years and was in charge of a Pro 14 match for the first time in March 2021, when she turned in a very praiseworthy performance in the match between Munster and Benetton. I have heard nothing but plaudits for her throughout her career, and I thought she was excellent when she was in charge of the England v New Zealand Women's World Cup final. I believe World Rugby has made a mistake in not selecting Holly for at least the TMO-FPRO team of seven officials. It would have sent a strong message to all aspiring women referees that if you stick in and work diligently, as Holly has done, then you will get the rewards that you deserve. How did we get to the stage where Scotland has not got a single person on the World Cup finals panel of 26 from eight different countries, with a Tier 2 nation having one of the designated referees, namely Nika Amushkule of Georgia? 
You have to go back to the 2007 World Cup when Malcolm Changeling was a touch judge to find a Scots on the finals panel. And it was for all of 19 years from 2002 to 2021 and the arrival of Mike Adamson that Scotland did not provide a referee for a Six Nations match. In Jim Fleming, we had one of the very best referees ever, but now we are struggling to find people with sufficient talent to officiate. My question to the SRU is simple. How and when are we going to find the new Jim Fleming? Having watched all the World Cup warm-up matches, I know I am not alone in thinking that quite a few of the referees were giving the impression of nervousness, the very last thing they should be displaying. But then no wonder when your every decision is now scrutinized to the nth degree, and that's if you survive the TMO-FPRO process. As of yesterday... The bunker review for foul play is now in place for the World Cup finals, but given the Owen Farrell case, I am writing this before the World Rugby Appeal outcome is known, can a referee be confident that his card decisions will be upheld? We now know that there will be a very good Scottish team in France, and my hope for Saturday's final warm-up match against George at Scottish gas Murrayfield is this, that no player on either side gets injured and has to miss the World Cup, nor should any player be so indisciplined as to gain a red card, as that will probably end their involvement in the World Cup. It will be a tough match against a big strong side, most of whom are based in France, and the Lelos will have a point to prove after recent wins over Romania have shown that they are the best in Europe outside the Six Nations, and indeed in the World Rugby rankings. They are in 11th place, two ahead of Italy. For numerous reasons, this is a must-win match for Scotland. Gregor Townsend's men need to build on their performance against Italy and France and keep the momentum going before that first match in France against South Africa on September 10th. I hope Townsend picks his best match day 23 on Saturday, but I would not be surprised if he gives some of the fringe players a run out. Losing to Georgia for the first time in the history of the fixture would not be a disaster, but it would certainly choke the progress that the Scots have been making. It has to be a victory, and hopefully a comfortable one without injuries or cards, so that seeds of doubt are not planted in Scottish minds. The man in the middle will be Mathieu Reynal of France, who will be hoping not to referee the World Cup final in Paris because he will be wanting his homeland to be playing in it. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 17th of August 2023 Arts and Entertainments Graeme Linehan to perform at new venue following fringe cancellation by Jodie Harrison, reporter. A comedy club has announced it has found a new venue for Father Ted writer Graham Linehan at the Edinburgh Fringe after the original venue cancelled the show he was due to appear in. On Tuesday evening, Leith Archies announced it was no longer hosting a comedy Unleashed show 
On Thursday, after learning Linehan, a critic of the trans rights movement, would be performing a stand-up routine. The venue claimed in a post on Instagram it did not know Linehan, who also wrote the IT crowd in Black Books, had been booked to perform beforehand. Comedy Unleashed has since announced on X, the microblogging site formerly known as Twitter, that it's found a new venue for Thursday's planned gig, but opted not to name the place where the show will go ahead. The club's post said, We've found a new venue for tomorrow's gig. The show goes on. Brackets, ticket holders will be emailed with the new address tomorrow afternoon. Close brackets. Meanwhile, co-founder Andy Shaw told BBC News, We've found what we think is a really appropriate venue which will become obvious on Thursday night why we think it is particularly appropriate. The change in venue was announced after Linehan told Talk TV's Julia Hartley Brewer in the morning he would consider le- taking legal action if the Leith Archies refused to host him. He said, It was cancelled within a couple of hours, so I had two hours of excitement and fans saying they were going to go. It was a sellout, but you do get used to this kind of thing after a while. It never really makes you feel good. The only good thing about it is that it's drawing more attention to the fact that essentially a group of highly ideological cultists have taken over institutions across society. If they apologise and put the gig on, I'll say no more about it, but otherwise I'll be looking at legal action. Leith Archie said on Tuesday, We were not aware of the lineup of this show in advance. We have made the decision to cancel this show as we are an inclusive venue and this does not align with our overall values. The venue added in a follow-up statement on Thursday morning, it was brought to our attention at the very last minute of the very controversial lineup. We work very closely with the LGBT plus community. It's a considerable part of our revenue. We believe hosting this one-off show would have a negative effect on future bookings. The decision was not influenced by the pressure of online activists, but by our regular community who use this space on a daily, weekly and, brackets, monthly, close brackets, basis. By Jody Harrison. This is from the Herald on Thursday the 17th of August 2023, from the news section. Disabled people face choice between eating or breathing. This article is written by Helen McArdle. Disabled people are experiencing unrelenting attacks on their human rights, according to reports to the United Nations. The Scottish Human Rights Commission SHRC, together with a coalition of Scottish Disabled People's Associations, have highlighted worsening poverty rates, along with the consequences the cost of living crisis is having on disabled people's ability to live independently at home. In two parallel reports for the UN, they warn that increasing costs for using medical equipment and assistive technology is forcing some disabled people to make stark choices about how often they use such equipment. In some cases, they say disabled people are being forced to choose between eating or breathing, with the inevitable consequence that they are ending up in hospital or residential care. The first 84-page report on the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, CRPD, highlights key concerns about the lack of government progress in protecting the rights of disabled people in Scotland and the UK. A supplementary report from the Scottish Independent Living Coalition, SILC, shares the lived experiences of disabled people. It warns that half, 51%, of all people in poverty are living in a household with at least one disabled member, 
and that devastating cuts to social care during the COVID-19 pandemic have yet to be reversed, leaving many with less support than they had pre-2020. The report also notes that six in ten people who died with COVID in Scotland were disabled people, with many continuing to face social isolation as they try to avoid infection. The employment gap for disabled people also remains high. In 2022, 82.5% of non-disabled were in employment, compared to 50.7% of disabled people. It comes as a UNCRPD committee reviews progress on the recommendations from its 2016 inquiry into the impacts of austerity measures on disabled people in the UK. That inquiry found that the UK was responsible for grave or systemic violations of disabled people's rights. Speaking on behalf of the SHRC, Jan Savage, its Executive Director, said there was an urgent need to address the barriers that disabled people face and the cumulative impact of these. She added, The Scottish Government has not done enough to ensure disabled people's human rights are fully realised and we are pushing for protection of disabled people's rights to employment, independent living and an adequate standard of living. Dr Jim Elder Woodward, Independent Chair of the Scottish Independent Living Coalition, SILC, said, The 2016 inquiry by the Committee on the Rights of Disabled People revealed the shocking toll that austerity measures were taking on disabled people across the UK. Now, seven years later, in many respects, the situation is worse. The current cost of living crisis, in which the price of goods and services outpace the rise of income, comes after a decade of devastating cuts in public services, which support disabled people in the community. Our place in society has been further jeopardised by a pandemic response which did not prioritise our human rights and an approach to economic recovery that does not value us. That article was written by Helen McArdle. This is from the Herald on Thursday the 17th of August 2023 from the news section. NHS Scotland strikes off as junior doctors accept pay deal. This article is written by Helen McArdle. Junior doctors in Scotland have overwhelmingly voted to accept the Scottish Government's improved pay offer, ending the threat of strike action. The offer will see eligible medics receive an uplift of 12.4% this year, backdated to April and a guaranteed pay rise in line with inflation until at least 2026 to 27. This replaced a previous pay offer of 14.5% over two years and will cost taxpayers around £61.3 million. It means that a junior doctor in their first year of foundation training after medical school will have a starting salary of more than £31,000, rising to over £64,000 for a fully trained specialist registrar. Along with a pay increase, the Scottish Government has also committed to a new pay review mechanism. The BMA Scotland ballot 
saw 81.64% of members vote in favour of the offer, based on a turnout of 71.24%. The improved pay offer was tabled by the Scottish Government to avert a three-day walkout by junior doctors, who account for 44% of NHS Scotland's medical workforce. Planned strike action had been due to take place from July 12th to the 15th and would have led to thousands of operations and outpatient appointments being cancelled. Scotland remains the only part of the UK to have avoided industrial action by healthcare workers over the past year. In England, junior doctors have just completed their fifth round of strike action, a four-day walkout from August 11th to 15th, in process over a pay award of 6% plus a £1,250 lump sum. BMA Scotland had argued that years of austerity and sub-inflation pay awards mean that junior doctors in Scotland today are earning 28.5% less in real terms than they were in 2008. Dr Chris Smith, chair of the BMA Scottish Junior Doctors Committee, said pay restoration was now a shared goal between the trade union and the Scottish Government, although he conceded that the 12.4% deal was a compromise that represents only a small amount of real-terms progress towards fully reversing the 28.5% pay cut we have received since 2008. He added, Key to this offer, that it sets it apart from what is happening elsewhere in the UK, is that the Scottish Government recognises this reality and has agreed to ongoing negotiations towards the full pay restoration to 2008 levels, with an unprecedented commitment to set inflation as the floor of the pay offer at each round of negotiation. This structure will maintain the momentum of our campaign in Scotland for full pay restoration over the next few months and into next year. If sufficient progress towards full pay restoration is not made at the end of the next round of negotiations, or should the Scottish Government not follow through with any elements of its offer, we will not hesitate to ballot our members again and take strike action should it be required. We have demonstrated our power and no one should be in any doubt about how strong we are as a collective or what we can deliver when we stand together. Health Secretary Michael Matheson welcomed the result of the ballot. He said, This is the single biggest investment in junior doctor pay since devolution and maintains our commitment to make Scotland the best place in the UK for junior doctors to work and train. Due to the meaningful engagement we have had with trade unions, we have avoided any industrial action in Scotland, the only part of the UK to avoid NHS strikes. We will now implement this pay uplift and will work with BMA to take forward the other impacts of the deal, including contract and pay bargaining reform. That article was written by Helen McArdle. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 17th of August 2023. From the sports section, the fixture newsletter. Messi MLS move met with universal acclaim for the most part by James Morgan 
News reaches the fixture from MLS where the impact of Lionel Messi on the league is, unsurprisingly, being met with universal acclaim for the most part. The Argentine resisted the lure of the Saudi Pro League, unlike most of his post-La Liga contemporaries, to opt for the United States as he seeks to wind down his career in the relative quietude of Florida. Already since joining Inter Miami, however, the legendary attacker is finding that the, that the glare of the spotlight is almost as binding as it was in France and Spain, with average Joes lining up to have their picture taken with Messi in supermarkets, crowds flocking to games, and a cast of hangers-on during nights out something akin to the bar scenes in Goodfellas. Nevertheless, the 36-year-old has been scoring prolifically in League's, league's Cup games for the new team, following his summer switch from Paris Saint-Germain, so freely, in fact, that he is already the all-time top scorer in the competition. Such form has helped guide Inter to the final of the competition, where they reached overnight following a 4-1 win over Philadelphia Union. Messi was on target again, bringing his tally to 9 goals in 6 games, although Union's defending for the goal left a lot to be desired, which may well explain why the Argentine has been averaging better than a goal a game. Jordi Alba, his former Barcelona teammate, was also on target, while Sergio Busquets, another from the all-conquering Barca side, was also in inter ranks as they swept Union aside. They, Messi, Busquets and Alba, pass on this confidence to the younger players and Messi has this commitment to the game. The former Barcelona manager Tata Martino, now head coach of Inter, said, He's working a lot, especially on recovery balls, and this is infectious to his teammates. Websites and social media have been awash with images of the former Barca trio, David Beckham, his wife Victoria, and Messi's wife Antonella, all partying or dining out together. It seems everybody wants a piece of the little magician, with sellouts accompanying each of the games he has played in thus far. Fans desperate to watch Messi in action have been willing to pay exorbitant sums for inter matches, with prices starting at around $300 each on major ticket resale platforms. However, not everyone is blown away by Messi's arrival. Prior to Inter's win over Philadelphia, the latter side manager, Jim Curtin, pleaded with his own supporters to hold on to their tickets in order to prevent Inter fans from snapping them up. Please don't sell your tickets, no matter how much money they're offering for them. Please, Curtin said. We know that we're going to have a packed Subaru Park. It's going to be the number one ticket in the city, for sure. I'm sure some celebrities will be out here in Philly, so I'm excited for it, Curtin added. Unsurprisingly, Messi's arrival in MLS has sparked a huge increase in MLS League Pass subscriptions, merchandise sales and social media audiences. George Mass, Inter Miami's managing director, says the number of subscriptions has more than doubled since the club signed Messi, which would put the figure at somewhere close to 2 million, given that in late July, the New York Post reported that the season pass subscriptions had reached 800,000, and that report was by James Morgan. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 17th of August 2023, from the opinion section, did Nicola Sturgeon really have to go with an English publisher? By Rosemary Goring 
Last Friday, in the cavernous Dovecot Studios in Edinburgh, Canongate Publishers celebrated its 50th birthday. Authors, editors, illustrators, journalists and friends, along with former and present staff from its Edinburgh and London offices, gathered to raise a glass of fizz to an operation which nobody, in 1973, would have imagined becoming such a success. Hosted by the effervescent Jamie Bing, this was a time to reminisce about the last few decades of a once humbling publishing house, co-founded by the much-missed Stephanie Wolfe, Murray, with her equally bohemian husband, Gus. For many years, Stephanie ran it almost single-handedly from its 16th-century offices in the Canongate. In doing so, she became something, something of a literary legend. Part of her legacy, along with an abundance of oft-told anecdotes, is the Canongate Classics, a paperback collection of timeless works by the likes of Robert Louis Stevenson, James Hogg, Walter Scott, Robert Burns and many more. Most notable of all was the publication of Alistair Gray's Lanark. As Bing reminded the throng, there were more than a few near collapses as the company finances treated on the brink. One such occasion, in 1994, he stepped in and bought it from the receivers. Since then, its fortunes have steadily risen, with one international bestseller after another. Jan Martel's Booker Prize winning Life of Pi, Michael Faber's The Crimson Petal, and The White, and the unauthorised autobiography of Julian Assange. In a prescient move, Canongate also secured the then-Senator Barack Obama's memoir Dreams for My Father, and its successor, The Audacity of Hope. Other memoirs and diaries have followed, including the Alan Rickman diaries, Truly Deeply, Disclosure, edited by my husband Alan Taylor. Yet, at no time in the last 13 years has Canongate followed a narrow path. Part of its personality is how eclectic and unpredictable it is. There's no telling what it will publish next. One book that will not appear in its list, however, is Nicola Sturgeon's forthcoming autobiography. Pan Macmillan recently announced its acquisition of the most eagerly anticipated political memoir since David Cameron's For the Record. Although as yet nothing is known of its contents, other than that it will be deeply personal and revealing, it is scheduled for publication in 2025. Of one thing we can be certain, Sturgeon will not be splashing out in a shepherd's hut with light to write in the back garden. And no, I am not suggesting she will be using the SNP's motorhome. At the moment, of course, her book is a story without a final chapter. Until the ongoing investigation into the SNP finances is concluded, nobody, including Sturgeon, knows how events will unfold. Yet, whatever does eventually transpire, I doubt this will be a work of hubris, airbrushing or self-aggrandizement, sins of which are far too many of the political classes are guilty. As a genre, such autobiographies are generally one-week wonders, responsible for the post-Christmas glutton charity bookshop shelves. I know a writer who built her house from remainder books. Almost certainly, a roll call of British parliamentarians will be holding up her walls. Tony Blair's A Journey, which was derided for oversharing details about his marriage, was described by one reviewer as written in a chummy style with touches of Mills and Boone. The least said about Alex Salmon's referendum diary, The Dream Shall Never Die, the better. 
it was dismissed by political commentator Alex Massey as the worst book of its type I've had the misfortune to read. Cameron's deadly dull self-exculpation was an exercise in damage limitation that fooled no one. Likewise, Bill Clinton's well-written My Life. The Promised Land, the heavy-going first volume of Barack Obama's projected two-part memoir of his time in the Oval Office, was outstripped by his wife Michelle's chatty memoir, and they haven't heard anyone drumming their fingers while awaiting its sequel. It is into this august, yet often turgid company that Sturgeon will soon be steppy. Like many others, I cannot wait to read what she has to say. The years of her time as a politician, and especially as First Minister, have been tumultuous. The runaway success of the SNP, when independence seemed tantalisingly close. The sensational trial and acquittal of her erstwhile friend, the former First Minister Alex Salmond. The horrors of the COVID-19 pandemic. And now, the police inquiry into the party's finances, during which she and her husband have both been arrested but not charged. A novelist putting such a plotline in front of their publishers will be accused of stretching credulity. Given Sturgeon's love of reading, we can expect that her recollections will be well and thoughtfully written. What I had also hoped, however, was that she would choose a Scottish publisher. Although the original firm of Macmillan was founded in 1843 by two brothers from Arran, it long ago ceased to be a Scottish outfit. Pan Macmillan is among the world's most powerful publishers, with the sort of clout and selling power no company north of the border can compete with. Among its authors are Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton, not to mention the likes of the Bronte sisters. Its list is, is exhaustive and sometimes illustrious, which will no doubt help burnish Sturgeon's literary credentials. Even so, I am disappointed. For a politician who has dedicated her career to the cause of independence, to go to a London-based publisher seems both contradictory and odd. The optics certainly are not good. To those outside the country, it will be read as confirmation there is no one on her home turf fit to publish a world leader's memoir. Admittedly, the pool of contenders is small, but she could nevertheless have opted for one of them. Doubtless the deal was negotiated by an agent, seeking the best terms and conditions. All the same, it feels like a snub. Sturgeon has never showed any interest in making millions and, until now, she has been a dauntless champion of her homeland. Placing her memoir with a Scottish house would have sent a message of confidence and pride in an industry which, in recent years, has needed all the support it can get. Instead, her choice reflects the age-old tradition of heading to London, where it would seem the streets are still paved with gold. And that was an opinion piece by Rosemary Goring. The Herald on the 18th of August and the Voices section. Editor's pick, my top five favourite articles this week by Catherine Salmond. My editor's pick comes to you this week as a top five, my favourite and most recommended articles of the last seven days, chosen by me for you. One, what's Hamza Yousaf going to do about Fergus Ewing? We led this week's media coverage on the heated relationship between the SNP and the Greens, including a candid piece from Fergus Ewing, MSP, on Sunday, who spoke out against a controversial coalition agreement. But what is the First Minister going to do about the rebel in his party? 
Our political correspondent, Kathleen Nutt, took a look with this first-rate analysis piece. Two national galleries facing legal action in copyright row. Caroline Wilson broke the exclusive story of a Glasgow artist who is pursuing legal action against the National Galleries of Scotland after she claimed part of her work had been contained within another artist's creation. It is by far an everyday occurrence in the Scottish art scene and one which prompted a lot of reaction from readers. 3. Soho House, Glasgow. Plans unveiled for first Scottish location. International attention was on this story, but we were on it first as reporter Craig Williams exclusively revealed the private members club was opening its doors in Scotland, close to the city chambers. It's a huge deal for influential artists, but also of significance to residents who will see the transformation of a historic Glasgow building. For all you need to know about Soho House, read this explainer. Appalling Scott Gov rent curbs fail to prevent new record bill rises. This is an issue which has dominated the headlines for months, and it took our front page print slot on Friday as reporter Martin Williams revealed a record high in private rents for Scots. Campaigners branded the findings appalling, and our readers were not short of comment either. 5. Only honesty will determine if Nicola Sturgeon's memoirs are worthy. As a former First Minister announced she was putting pen to paper to tell all in her memoirs, our columnist Danny Garavelli wrote that although Sturgeon's book will fly off the shelves regardless, it's the honesty part of that triptych which will determine the worthiness of the enterprise. Will you be pre-ordering a copy? And that was by Catherine Salmond. The Herald, on the 18th of August, and the Voices section. We should be proud of Scotland's work to help world's poorest folk. This weekend marks World Humanitarian Day, a celebration and a commemoration of humanitarian aid workers around the world. It's a time to mark the incredible impact our colleagues have in supporting people living in some of the most fragile places on Earth. Sadly, it's also time to remember those who have lost their lives in seeking to save and improve those of others. But as we reflect on each of those personal sacrifices, we must also recognise that global humanitarian need is at an all-time high. The main UN coordination body that monitors disasters, OCHA, estimated last month that 363 million people are in need of urgent humanitarian assistance. Another huge leap on what was already a record total last year. At the same time, the UN has warned that funding to respond to this need has barely passed a quarter of the level required. This yawning shortfall means people are left to endure often appalling circumstances without the help they so badly need. We see what this means for those around the world in our news bulletins, currently filled with images of the growing impact and destruction caused by more frequent and more extreme weather, heat waves, storms, floods and droughts. Scientists are increasingly linking these directly to an accelerating climate crisis that was created by the failure of rich countries like the UK to reduce emissions fast enough, compounded by a lack of investment to build the resilience of climate-vulnerable communities before disaster strike. You can be excused for finding this all a bit overwhelming, but amidst the gloom there are grounds for optimism and pride. 
As eight leading humanitarian organisations of Scotland, we collectively advise the Scottish Government as an expert panel on how to allocate its relatively small-scale but vital humanitarian spending. In the past two years alone, more than £8 million of funding has been committed. And as well as responding to high-profile crises like the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, the devastating floods in Pakistan and the recent earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, the Scottish Government's Humanitarian Emergency Fund has variously supported humanitarian relief in parts of the world which rarely capture our attention. In the past two years alone, it's funded humanitarian responses to a range of hidden crises. These regulated down the news news agenda and all too easily forgotten from the current crisis following from the conflict in Sudan to that in Burkina Faso. These contributions, alongside tens of thousands of individual donations to our organisations from across Scotland, have not only saved lives, but are giving many people a lifeline back from the brink to slowly recover and rebuild for the future. Right now in the Horn of Africa, Somalia, Ethiopia, South Sudan and parts of Kenya, Millions of children are actually malnourished, and millions more don't get the food they need to grow and live a normal life. The tightening grip of the climate emergency in this region has led to five successive failed harvests for people entirely reliant on crops and livestock for their food and livelihoods. Long-standing regional and ethnic or tribal conflicts are the only likely to intensify in these circumstances. However, with the funds donated here, our teams, working with partners and experts within the impacted countries, have provided thousands of families with the basics of food, water, medicines and nutritional supplements, whilst also helping farmers to grow more drought-resistant crops. As we continue to adapt the way we respond, we increasingly provide cash or vouchers directly to the most vulnerable families, so they are given the dignity of deciding on their most urgent priorities. None of this would be possible without the continued generosity of people from across Scotland, including many readers of this paper. At a time when rising living costs are fueling hardship for many of us here, we should celebrate this compassion, this collective display of global solidarity. So today we say thank you for your support. Together Scotland will not look away from those in crisis. And that was by uh, Francis Guy. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 21st of August 2023, from the news section. CrimeCon is due to take place in Glasgow in September. Article by Catriona Stewart. Their names are well known for the most tragic of reasons. Anne Ming was forced to begin a 17-year quest for justice after her daughter, Julie Hogg, disappeared and was later found murdered. Scott's forensic scientist, Professor Jim Fraser has famously been involved in high-profile investigations including the murders of Rachel Nicholl and Damiola Taylor. They are just two of the guest speakers who will come together in Glasgow next month for CrimeCon, the world's leading true crime event. It will welcome top-level documentary makers, investigative journalists, popular podcasters, renowned criminologists and true crime authors. Nancy Bowen, Event Director of CrimeCon UK said, We have hours of compelling, informative and engaging content that's sure to pique fans of true crime. 
Our attendees are sympathetic, empathetic and engaged fans who want justice for victims of crime and their families. With our partners CBS Reality, we have some outstanding speakers this year and I am so looking forward to returning to Glasgow. Ms Ming started her campaign after her daughter, Julie Hogg, disappeared in 1989 and was later found murdered. Despite police finding the perpetrator, a hung jury led to an acquittal and an 800-year-old double jeopardy law stopped Billy Dunlop from facing justice in a second trial when new information came to light. Anne, a recent winner of a special recognition award at the True Crime Awards in June, will be talking about her personal journey over the last three decades. Other notable speakers include former senior investigating officer Colin Sutton, who led more than 30 successful murder investigations, most notably the Levi Belfield case. Professor Fraser is a known cold case reviewer who has been involved in many high-profile investigations, including the murders of Rachel Nickell and Damiola Taylor. He will join Mr Sutton to discuss the importance of DNA, but we'll talk about how it has hindered as well as helped police investigations. Attendees will also be able to dive into the harrowing and empowering journey of international best-selling author Mary Turner Thompson, who will unravel the deceptions of bigamist Will Jordan. Attendees will also hear from filmmaker and author Bexy Cameron, who will be speaking with Casey from the Cult Vault podcast about her life growing up in the Children of God, a notorious international cult active even in Scotland. Also in attendance will be presenter of the hit podcast I Am Not Nicholas, Jane McSorley, who will be speaking about her year-long investigation into Nicholas Rossi, a US fugitive who faked his own death and was found alive in Glasgow. CrimeCon Glasgow, in partnership with CBS Reality, takes place on Saturday 16th September at Hilton Glasgow on William Street. And that report was by Katrina Stewart. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 21st of August 2023, from the news section, Jean Freeman backs calls for NHS managers to be regulated. Story by Andrew Learmonth. Former Health Secretary Jean Freeman has backed demands for more regulation of non-clinical NHS executives in the wake of serial killer Lucy Letby's crimes. Last week, a jury at Manchester Crown Court found the nurse guilty of seven counts of murder and six counts of attempted murder during her time working in a neonatal unit in Chester. She was also found not guilty of two further counts of attempted murder. One of the most upsetting aspects of the case is that concerns about Letby were raised with bosses at the hospital two years before they were called in the police. Whistleblowers have said babies could have survived had executives acted sooner. The Countess of Chester's Hospital Neonatal Unit Head Consultant, Dr Stephen Breary, first read Letby's association with an increase in baby collapses in June 2015. He told The Guardian that deaths could arguably have been avoided from as early as February 2016 had managers at the hospital responded appropriately. Around seven senior clinicians eventually raised concerns about Letby. However, police were only contacted in 2017 Dr Beery and another consultant 
Dr. Ravi Jararam were ordered to enter a mediation process with the nurse. Both consultants have said executives at the hospital were reluctant to involve the police for fear of damaging the trust reputation. Over the weekend, the British Medical Association, the professional body for doctors, repeated their call for tighter regulation of NHS managers. In a statement, they said, It is vital that any inquiry looks carefully at how concerns of the most senior doctors were handled and able to be dismissed, which perpetuated this horrific and catastrophic series of events. The BME has been clear that the NHS and the whole healthcare system must have an open culture where doctors are listened to and can be confident in speaking out. We have long called for non-clinical managers in the NHS and other healthcare service providers to be regulated in line with the manner in which clinical staff are by professional bodies. Our thoughts go out to the families and staff involved in this heartbreaking case. We must now leave no stone unturned to make sure this can never happen again. Ms Friesen told the Herald that there needed to be more regulation in Scotland and across the UK than there currently is. Doctors, nurses, anaesthetists all have professional regularity bodies because of the vital, literally life and death, responsibilities they carry. They have a professional code to follow. We don't have that for senior, non-clinically qualified executives or managers in the NHS, but they also carry significant responsibilities for patients and patient safety. We need to look seriously at what might be the comparable approach with this group of very senior NHS staff. Scottish Lib Dem leader Alex Cole Hamilton agreed. He said, I think everyone who has followed the stories that emerged from the Lucy Lightby case was shocked at what they heard. The Scottish Government should explore whether the current regulatory arrangements are sufficient to ensure that such a case can never happen here. Following last week's verdict, the UK Government announced a non-statutory independent inquiry. The Scottish Government told the Herald they would be paying close attention to the findings. A spokesperson said, Our thoughts and sympathies are with the families affected by these appalling crimes. The Scottish Government will work closely with colleagues across the UK to ensure that any learning from the independent review, commissioned by the Department of Health and Social Care, is used to further strengthen protections in our systems if required. It is vital that everyone who works in our health service has the confidence to raise any concerns they may have. Policy measures are in place to support this and staff should raise a concern with their line manager or team leader or with a more senior manager if circumstances mean this is more appropriate. There are also dedicated whistleblowing champions in each health board to ensure staff are encouraged and supported to speak up. The Independent National Whistleblowing Office, run by the Scottish Public Services Ombudsman, is the first of its kind in the UK and provides a mechanism for external review of how a health board primary care or independent provider has handled a whistleblowing case. Meanwhile, there have been concerns raised over the independent inquiry's lack of power. Crucially, it will not be able to compel witnesses to appear. Stephen Brown, the Tory chair of the Commons Health Select Committee, said the inquiry needed to be effective. I can't actually see how it's anything but helpful to ministers to that effectiveness for this inquiry to have everything that it needs to conduct it, including a judge. 
Mr Brown said some witnesses may not be so willing to cooperate with the investigation. The other two things that draw them together is the need for public confidence. I can't see how anything other than a proper judge-led statutory inquiry would do that, he said. Letby is due to be sentenced today. Her lawyers have indicated that she does not want to be present in court. And that report was by Andrew Learmonth. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 21st of August 2023, from the politics section. Exclusive! Outrage following Harvey's remarks about older people. Article by Andrew Learmonth. Age Scotland has slammed Patrick Harvey after the Green Minister claimed over 65s had not come to terms with the reality of what the climate emergency requires of us all collectively. The charity said the remarks were ill-considered and patronising and an ageist stereotype. They warned that comments like this fundamentally undermine older people's participation in society, make them feel less valued and can lead to greater isolation and loneliness. The 50-year-old Scottish Green co-leader made the bizarre claim during an interview with the Scotsman when he asked about his recent spat with the veteran MSP Fergus Ewing. Last week, writing in this paper, Mr Ewing described Mr Harvey and his party as hard-left extremists who should never be anywhere near government. A number of other SNP politicians and former Scottish Government ministers have criticised the pact in recent weeks. Former Finance Secretary Kate Forbes suggested the party should check in with members about the content of the deal. In his interview, Mr Harvey was asked what he thought of Mr Ewing, 65, and Ms Forbes, 33. He said, I think very different things about the two of them. We'll probably agree and disagree about a range of different things, but one of them is a bright and articulate person and the other is not. Press further, he added, the other is Fergus Ewing. He represents a generation that simply hasn't moved on and come to terms with the reality of what the climate emergency requires of us all, collectively. I don't think that's true of Kate Forbes, despite the fact that I will fundamentally disagree with her on certain issues. For example, in the ways that she raised some of the issues around HPMAs, I don't think that was a knee-jerk reaction of just saying that this is a bad idea and it shouldn't happen. Catherine Crawford, Interim Chief Executive of Age Scotland, said they were disappointed by the comments. She said, We have been campaigning for years to shift the negative narrative that exists around ageing, so it is sad to see such a sweeping and inaccurate statement made about older people. It is wrong, of course, but such comments also fundamentally undermine older people's participation in society make them feel less valued and can lead to greater isolation and loneliness. Older people make important contributions to the climate debate as they do in all areas of life. Our big survey, which will be published in full next month, found that almost two-thirds of older people said protecting the environment was very important and 51% said tackling climate change is very important to them, which makes the suggestion that older people are unaware of the extent of climate crisis or how to mitigate it come across as ill-considered and somewhat patronising. We hope that everyone, whether they're a politician or not, will think twice about the language they use when speaking about older people and we will continue our work to ensure that ageist stereotypes are removed from our public discourse now 
and in the future. The Scottish Greens have been approached for comment and that article was an exclusive by Andrew Learmonth. The Herald on the 22nd of August and the news section. Drug Death Stats, a battle against heroin addiction and HIV by Katrina Stewart. For Terry and Stewart, it is the smallest, simplest things that mean the most to them. Making dinner, walking their daughter to nursery, arranging a birthday party. These are the mundane daily events they thought they might never be able to experience. The cold spiral into heroin addiction had a desperately destructive impact on both her family life and health. Their daughter received into care at birth while they both have contracted HIV. But Terry and Stuart's story is one of triumph. Their little girl is back in their care and they are being are determined to stay together. It might sound like a boring life to some people, Terry said. But I love taking my daughter to nursery, picking her up, making her dinner, having a life that we never had. The 36-year-old met Stuart 12 years ago, not long after her older children, two sons, had been received into local authority care, and she had turned to heroin as a way of numbing her profound feelings of loss. From the first moment she tried the drug, she said she was hooked. Stuart was already addicted. He had been using various drugs from the age of just eight. The 44-year-old said, from the age of eight, I was taking one substance or another. I got into heroin because I used to go out from Friday to Saturday. I used to take ecstasy when I was at the dancing and take Valium for the calm down, so we could go out again the next day. There was no Valium one day, so I took a line of heroin to make myself feel better. Glasgow's club scene was initially the backdrop for his drug use before the problem began to be a part of everyday life. He added, you would go out on Friday night, then take it on Saturday morning, then again on Sunday morning for the calm down. Then you would be taking it on a Wednesday, when you weren't even going out. Then a Thursday. Then you're not even going out at the weekend, but you're still taking it. The couple's commitment to one another was both a curse and a blessing. While they took drugs together, they also pledged to quit together. In 2016, the couple decided to stop using drugs. They received prescriptions for methadone and began attending groups run by the charity With You, formerly known as Adaction. Terry says, we've always been this way. We are a team. When one of us wanted to come off it, that mean it was meant it was time to do it together, no matter what it takes. A few years later, Terry and Stuart discovered they were pregnant. They were overjoyed, but just two months later, they were receiving devastating news. Terry said, I fell pregnant in November. We were clean by that point, but we were both diagnosed with HIV in January. Thanks to support with, from With You, we stayed clean through that time. We didn't relapse when we found out about the HIV. They also didn't relapse when they found out the local authority planned to accommodate their daughter, who the Herald has agreed not to name, immediately at birth. It was a horrendous wrench for the couple, but they were determined to have her return to their care and once again turn to With You, where they had helped to prepare for, understand and cope with often intense and difficult social work meetings. Terry said, I felt deflated after the meetings, but I knew I could pick up the phone to With You. I would talk to With You during the walk home, and by the time I got home, I I would know I can do this. Now their daughter is home and Terry's sons also come to visit their mum and stepdad on weekends. Terry says her little girl have 
gave her strength and determination to change her life, and her daughter was recently returned to her care. She is now planning a third birthday party, which will be themed on the movie Frozen, and attended by all her nursery friends and Princess Elsa. She said, if you're not ready to get clean, you're not going to get clean. I was ready because of my daughter. I didn't do it for my sons. I had a second chance with my daughter. Stuart adds, people come up to me and say, I'm looking brilliant. They say they want to get clean and that's the best way to do it. I always tell them, with you. And that was by Katrina Stewart. The Herald on the 22nd of August and the news section. Beavertown Brewery hides UV-activated beer mats at Glasgow Pub by Sarah Campbell. A UK brewery is on a mission to reimagine pub walks this week as they stash UV-activated maps at a Glasgow bar. Customers at the Ark on North Frederick Street will this weekend be given a limited edition beer mat with every purchase of a pint of Beavertown's brewery Neck Oil IPA. Once held up to the sun, the mat will reveal a five-kilometre walking trail that explores hidden destinations in and around the city centre, from ancient burial sites to stone circles. The initiative comes after research commissioned by Beavertown found that 48% of Glaswegians admitted to being completely unaware of historical landmarks in their own hometown. Tom Rainsford, marketing, marketing director of Beavertown Brewery, said, Working... A pint stop into a walk with a mate is something we all love. In fact, our research has shown that over half of Glaswegians, 57%, like to treat themselves to a trip to the pub after a walk. This bank holiday, we wanted to add a touch of mystery and lure you to lore to your pub walk with our UV beer maps. So grab your walking boots, finish your pint off, of neck oil and discover that the secret maps hidden in your local pubs aren't the only things to be uncovered in your hometown this weekend. One UVB mat will be given out with every purchase of a pint of Beaver Town's Neck Oil IPA from Saturday, August 25 to Monday, August 28. Alternatively, you can find a map of Beaver Town Brewery's Glasgow Walking Trail at the link in the website. The Herald on the 22nd of August and the news section. Abuse in Scottish classroom is on the rise due to restorative justice by Katrina Stewart. Restorative justice in Scottish classrooms is in the spotlight again as a teaching union claims a practice is causing a rise in violence and abuse of teachers. A survey found teachers being spat at, head-butted, punched, kicked and having chairs thrown at them, while one claimed to have been beaten unconscious with a scooter. NASUWT claims an over-reliance on an ineffective restorative approaches to managing pupil behaviour is exacerbating an increase in verbal and physical abuse from pupils in the last 12 months. New research examining the scale of pupil behaviour concerns among teachers in Scotland, published today by the Teachers' Union, has found that a majority of teachers report an increase in the issue. In February this year, the Herald spoke to a whistleblower at Bannerman High School in Glasgow who told of the failings of restorative justice in the secondary, where alleged violence prompted staff to walk out on strike. Now the union says the survey shows nearly 4 in 10 respondents reported experiencing violence or physical abuse from pupils in the previous 12 months. Specific experiences include a teacher who was hit in the abdomen by a window pole and another teacher who was attacked with a scooter and kicked in the chest, 
resulting in unconsciousness. Some 93% of NASWT members said that the number of pupils exhibiting physically violent and abusive behaviours has increased in the last 12 months. While 94% reported receiving verbal abuse, including being sworn at, threatened with serious violence, including threats of being shot and targeted with racial or sexual insults. The union further said that 95% of members claimed the number of pupils verbally abusing staff has increased in the last 12 months. Dr. Patrick, Patrick Roach, NASUWT General Secretary, said research shows schools are placing sole responsibility for poor pupil behaviour on teachers. He said the culture of teacher blaming has become increasingly widespread, with employers failing to accept their responsibilities for promoting good order. It is clear teachers are not getting the protection and backup they deserve. We need concerted action at school and national levels to reduce the incidence of violence, abuse and poor pupil behaviour and restore calm to our schools. Failure to tackle violence and abuse in our schools now will have long-lasting consequences both in terms of teacher recruitment and retention and in equipping young people with the tools they need to become healthy, happy and successful adults. Nearly four in five teachers told the union the ineffective use of restorative behaviour programmes in their schools is the biggest contributor to a decline in pupil behaviour. Some 76% also cited a lack of proper policies and procedures in their schools to deter unacceptable behaviour. Restorative approaches to pupil behaviour management have been increasingly adopted by schools in recent years. The practice focuses on the use of structured conversations between staff and pupils to address incidents of poor behaviour, including physical and verbal abuse of staff and fellow students. But 73% of members who said their school uses restorative conversations between pupils and staff as a method for managing behaviour said they felt it was ineffective in dealing with behavioural incidences. When asked what would help them in managing pupil behaviour, 84% said pupils with behavioural issues being moved into a specialist provision that better meets their needs. More than 6 in 10 cited more in-class and external support in the form of teaching assistance and access to child psychologists and mental health professionals. Nearly a quarter reported needing time off work due to the stress, physical or mental health impact of violence and abuse from pupils and nearly half said they are seriously considering leaving as a result of violence and abuse from pupils. Mike Corbett, NASUWT National Official Scotland, said, While we are not opposed to the use of restorative approaches as part of a range of measures employed by schools to manage pupil behaviour, the feedback from members suggests that all too often restorative systems have become synonymous with no consequences or sanctions for poor behaviour for pupils. Restorative approaches can have benefits, but they should not be used as a one-size-fits-all approach to managing pupil behaviour, particularly incidents of serious violence and abuse. It is also clear from our survey that such approaches are frequently being applied inconsistently and teachers are not being given time or trained to make such conversations impactful for all pupils. Mr Corbett added, we've been highlighting for some time to government the need for greater action to protect teachers from violence and to address the root causes of the rise in abuse from pupils. Our actions have helped push the government into convening a national summit on relationships and behaviour in schools on the 5th of September, in which we will be participating in giving an evidence. 
We will be using this platform and continuing to take all steps up to and including industrial action in individual schools to support teachers' right to work in safety. It is now incumbent on ministers and employers to recognise the scale of the problem and work with us to put changes in policy and practice in schools in place. And that was by Katrina Stewart. The Herald on the 22nd of August and the Arts and Ends section. Edinburgh Fringe, here's the joke, Votis Best of the Fest by Gabriel Mackay. A zoo-paste pun has been named the best of this year's Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Comedian Lorna Rose Treen took nearly half of the vote in a poll by television channel Dave for her gag, I started taking a zookeeper, but it turned out he was a cheater. The joke taken from her show Skin Pigeon at Pleasant's Courtyard, top list of funniest of the fringe with 44% of Brits surveyed voting it the best. A short list of jokes was chosen by a panel of UK comedy critics from shows at this year's Fringe and anonymously voted for by the British public. These panellists attended hundreds of shows across the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, listening out for those jokes which tickled them the most, then submitted their ten favourites. The shortest was then submitted anonymously, without the name of the comic involved, to a public vote of 2,000 Brits, after which the funniest was revealed. Speaking about a joke claiming the top spot, Ms. Rose Treen said, I'm blooming chuffed to have one Dave's best joke of the fringe. Are you kidding? I can't wait to tell my mum. It is already such a wonderful joy to be debuting at the Edinburgh Fringe this year, and this is a lovely thing on top. A huge thank you for awarding my stupid joke with this title. Now in this 14th year, previous winners of the coveted Joke of the Fringe Award include Masai Graham, King Cheng, Olaf Falafel, Tim Vine, Rob Orton, Stuart Francis, Zoe Lyons and Nick Helm. Miss Rosetreen is the reigning winner of the Funny Women Award and a mentee of Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared creators Becky Sloan, Joe Pelling and Baker Terry. Her offbeat shows, bizarre characters and flamboyant costumes and was highly anticipated at this year's Fringe. Other jokes in the top ten include one-liners from the likes of Liz Gutterbock, Amos Gill and Masai Graham, featuring subjects such as the inflation crisis, apologetic British people and podcasting. And that was by Gabriel Mackay. That concludes this week's edition of the Heron Scotland podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Heron Review and tell your friends about our service.